Good evening. Welcome to Unsheathed number seven. I am Kyle Gold. And I am Cam Harasaki. And we're recording from our uh, home base again this week. And we finally have our little setup, I think, uh, to the point where we have something reliable and workable and what sounds good. Yep. Kit's in helping out with that. I mean, a very tech savvy wolf. And he made a delightful homemade sangria that I am currently enjoying. Kit does love his alcohol. And I love to help drinking it. Uh, so we should uh, get right to the questions. We have one that uh, we've been letting languish for a little while from uh, Athelstan, who says, It's said that mastery is just a matter of practice. How do you handle the embarrassing writing you produce when you first get started? I've tried writing, and when I look back on it, I facepalm and give up on it. Then I think about my stories I have floating in my head years later, wondering how to get them out. Uh, Athelstan actually sent this in weeks ago, and it sort of got lost in the shuffle of questions. So uh, my answer is, the way you handle the embarrassing writing you produce at the first is the same way we inadvertently handled your question, which is we ignore it and move on and do other things. And forget about it. And forget about it. Um <laughs> But uh, unlike your question, actually, some of the writing's best left forgotten. It's um, it's instructive to go back and look at the look at the writing that you've done early on and see what you can learn from it. But at the same time, if it's just going to depress you, then it's just best to leave it be. If it's truly, truly embarrassing, and you have it online someplace take it down if it bothers you that much otherwise i keep all of my old writing to go back to if i ever need a quick pick me up on a story i'm currently working on and i think it's not turning out well i will read older stuff and suddenly feel way better about myself yeah i do the same i i don't think i've gone back to read my old writing very frequently but you know i still have all the books upstairs so i uh, pick up vol every now and then and flip through it and you know you focus on the good parts you look at how far have I come since then? How far, how much have I learned? What were the good things that I was doing back then? And sometimes you'll find things that you did in your early writing that you, you forgot or you lost track of that you really liked. So it's every now and then it's worth going back to um, see if there's something that you're missing that you could pick up again. But by and large, just learn from it and move ahead forward. Yeah, nobody's perfect. Nobody ends up perfect. And certainly nobody starts out perfect. So... So our second question here is from Fratus. His question is, what advice do you have for creating a character that can fit a certain role in a story? It's an interesting question, and I'm, I guess I'm not quite sure what he means, so maybe we can talk through it. I think we're both... It's, it's kind of a broad question. It is. It's a broad question, and I think that that might actually help us answer it in a strange roundabout way by the time we get around to covering our bases. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think... I kind of feel like what he's what he's asking, and he's I'm sure he'll write in and tell us if we're wrong, but I kind of feel like what he's asking is if, for instance, you have a villain and a hero and you know you you know the villain needs to have an assistant or something, um, how do you create a character that fills a role that you know you need to have? Um, that was that's one way I would look at the question. Yeah, or if there's just sort of a hole in your story and you recognize that something needs to go there, but you don't know what, that was the other possibility that had crossed my mind. Okay. So, 
if you think there's a hole in your story, like you need um, you need a character there, and you're not quite sure what. Although it seems to me he thinks he does know um, what kind of role he wants the character to have. Um, I'm assuming something like you know there's a hole in the story for a love interest, for the comic relief, something like that. Um, I would usually just go ahead and start with some kind of just random character. Just, you know, if you, it, I would start at a very basic level and say, okay, in this scene, we need another character to do something like this, and then just insert the character into the story. Yeah, in my experience, side characters tend to very quickly take on a life of their own anyway where you'll have only the vaguest idea other than, okay, this character needs to go here, and then you'll start writing them, and they'll just sort of jump right off the page. Because I think that you don't obsess over them as much as you do the main characters, and so you sort of have a more unfettered and more free-flowing thought process that ends up on the page. And that, I think, is what results in a lot of minor characters ending up a bit more colorful than you might otherwise expect. Yeah, they definitely don't bear the weight that the main characters do. Um, the main character has to go through changes, has to go through the plot, has to learn a lesson, what have you, through the whole story. But you can have side characters that are simply comic relief. You can have side characters that are simply there to be complete bastards. Um, and that gives you a lot more freedom. It's not necessarily a good thing to have too many side characters in a project, but I think that's a topic we can cover at a future time. Um, so I would say if you're looking to create a character to fit a role, just write the character into the story. And if they fit and you like them, then they will expand their role. The other thing about side characters is that you can afford to make them more exaggerated than you can main characters because since they're not always on the page and they're not always the focus, you can give them attributes and personalities that are a bit more beyond believable because there's less time that the reader's going to have to spend with them. Yeah, that's a really good point, too. And there's, uh, it's also, if you think about it, people that you just meet once or twice can have extremes of behavior because you don't know them as well. And you might be meeting them just on a bad day when they're having, they have a headache and the kids were screaming and the boss yelled at them and they would do something that maybe only, you know, one day out of a hundred they would actually do. But you don't know that. You just know the one day you spent with them. Or maybe they're drunk and you can't really base your idea of their personality on that either. Exactly. Um, I actually had a a character in the novel Vol that came about completely by accident. Um, Vol goes into a an office and I thought I wanted to show the affinity that species have to each other. So foxes and foxes kind of have this low-level we're going to get along because we're the same species going on. And so I created just on the spot an assistant to the person he was trying to see who was a fox, and they shared that moment. And it turned out that that fox became a romantic relationship for Vol over the course of the novel, which was a role in the novel that I didn't know I needed. But as soon as I'd written the character, I knew that he would fit that role, and it ended up being a pretty strong subplot to the novel because it showed the contrast between the life that Vol wanted to have and the life that his duty was forcing him to. So uh, I'm, I'm all for just sort of throw the characters in there and editing passes are for taking out characters. And again, that's another topic for another time. 
And in reference to that, he's actually one of my favorite characters from Vol. <laughs> I just, he, he's adorable. I mean, he's he's no helper, but well, I mean, who, who is? Who is? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Is there anything else you want to say about that? Faradis, please write in and let us know if we didn't get the sense of your question, and uh, we'll be happy to revisit it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I hope that answered at least part of what he was looking for, but... Well, at the very least, we had fun talking about it. So. Yeah. Well, we talked about cute foxes, so, I mean... Yeah. That's, that's never time poorly spent. Always a plus. Um, so, our next question is from Stink Dog, who says... I'm a published writer, but sadly I have not had more than one disappointingly short story published so far. As such, I'm trying to improve constantly, and I figure one of the best ways to do that is to ask some pros what they hate the most in the stuff they read and to avoid doing those things. In short, I'm curious, so here's my question. What are the top five furry writing pet peeves that each of you have? Now, first off, don't be disappointed in yourself for only having one short story published. That's fantastic that you've had a story published at all, and you should be very proud of yourself. Yeah, definitely. Anything, anything published out there, anything you've gotten someone else to say, yes, we want to print this, is an achievement. Yes. So we actually came up, we made independent lists, and we found out we had a lot of overlap. So between the two of us, we're going to give you six pet peeves that we have. And please note, again, that these are pet peeves, which does not mean necessarily that they are bad to use in writing, except that the two of us both kind of think they are. (laughs) But the exception to the rule is something that, you know, if you can do something clever and unique by breaking through a trope then that's fine but don't just try to roll with it and because otherwise it's just going to be tropey and tripey and exactly um so we're going to go i guess alternate and say um and these aren't in any particular order these are just kind of in the order they occurred to us so the first one on the list is uh using furry slangs or colloquialisms for instance using the word furs instead of people like, wow, he's a nice-looking fur, or, hey, I had a bunch of furs over tonight for a party. Um, other words, uh, I personally don't like to see the word yiffy used in any narrative context. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm the same, and I actually don't think it appears in any of... Even my oldest writing, I don't think it shows up in there. I think I may have used it ironically once, <laughs> but maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. But you had a couple other words. Oh, right, and like other sort of furry specific terminology like furend and footpaws. I was editing a story for someone the other day and they had the word footpaws in it. And I go, if you're going to look to publish this, either say feet or say paws, but don't say both. It sounds really internet slang. and... And sort of on that topic, we have had, I do use the word paws for hands in my story when I have furries. Uh, and I have had people say that that bothers them because they think of paw as something like a dog or cat has, which does not have actual fingers on it. And they think if they're furries and they're part human, then they have hands. Uh, for me, I just like using paws, and that seems to fit for my writing. So it, I can understand where it's a pet peeve of some other people, but it happens not to be one of mine. I never used to use the word paws until I became friends with you and got really exposed to your writing, and then I started using it, and now I can't not use it. <laughs> well, at least we don't use paw hands or paw feet or paw hooves or <laughs> anything like that. I'm, I'm trying to imagine a paw hoof in my head now, and it's just this horrifying, like, Dr. Moreau monstrosity. <laughs> yeah, I kind of think of it as, like, 
it would have fingers, but then it would have the hard, um, bony hoof layer on the outside of the fingers. You know, I can't see what I'm doing right now, but it's, you know, the short I'm, version I'm is, it. <laughs> the short version is nobody wants to get a hand job from that. Right. <laughs> you got to prioritize. Exactly. So I'll give you number two. So yes, number two on our list is too much exposition on the origin of furries. I think we briefly touched upon this before about how there's a lot of front-loading that you seem to have about rationalizing why your world has furry characters and where they came from. And really, if your main character is, you know, 19-year-old Johnny College Fox, we don't need to know the origin story of why he's an animal person. Exactly. Um, The only cases in which the origins of furries are really relevant to the story is things like the, um, uh, what was it called? The the Time of Change. It wasn't the For Kindred, but it was that comic book series. It was like, uh, any of the, there was like several furry stories where the, the main plot is that there's a virus or a big unexplained event or space aliens or, you know, global bio-warfare catastrophe that turns some portion of the population into furries. And uh, and in that case, the, the exposition is part of the plot. But um, if you're going to do that story, do it uh, do it well, because that plot line's also yeah. been done over Have it and be over part again. of the plot, if nothing else. Right. Don't have it be completely ancillary, if you're going to do it at all. And... You know, honestly, it all depends on what the focus of your story is. Because if the focus of your story is humans discriminate against furries and, you know, furries don't deserve to be discriminated against, which I'm leading into our third point, um, then we don't really care how furries came about. They're just here. Um, you know, to... Uh, the, it, yeah, as Hirosaki said, it has to be part of the plot. And um, in most cases where these things are revealed, it is not. Yeah, I mean, I think out of all the items on our list, this is probably one of the ones that you can most get away with if you really needed to. But especially if you're just going to be writing a story where, you know, Wolf A and Fox B get together and have hot, messy sex, I don't want to read a history lesson in the middle of that. Right. And the... A lot of people say, well, you know, I want to put this in in case people aren't familiar with furries and in case, uh, you know, so your story's being read by the fandom. People are just going to say, you know, you can accept furries as a, as a given, uh, unless you're going to be selling this to a mainstream publisher or something, in which case people may be curious about the origin of furries, but in a short story, it's not going to matter. I agree. I think that we've kind of, before we... All right. Smash this point to death. I'll let you go with the next one. Okay. Uh, pet peeve number three. Uh, stories in which furries are always better than humans. Um, this one comes up kind of regularly. It's a little bit subtle. Uh, I've, I've read several stories in which it's always the, the bad, evil humans against the good, angelic, virtuous, saintly furries. And uh, furries just by virtue of being furries, of, of being this kind of creature that we as the writers envy and would like to be like, we paint them as being perfect and everything that the humans do is stacked against them and 
that you know humans are terrible humans are flawed humans are evil humans carry the capacity for death and destruction within them but furries are good because they're part of nature and nature is pure and kind and virtuous and all that stuff and you know this doesn't just apply to furries and humans but that's how we see it in the fandom any story in which one group of people um, regardless of the individuals is painted as better than another group of people is going to have that inherent flaw in it. And I think that in this case, when you're pointing out, oh, specifically in the furries are better than humans, I think that the rationale behind that is often something that you know creates a false dichotomy because the badness of which humans are accused as often things that are based on human nature to do things a certain way and to want things a certain way. And really, in these sort of stories, furries are almost effectively just humans in animal suits, in a way, with the same sort of intellectual drive and capacity. Right. And so this whole absence of, you know, almost like Nietzschean good versus evil that is a sort of absent from two-legged animal people consciousness just kind of doesn't make sense. Yeah. Uh, I will say, uh, Watts Martin did a, a really nice sort of reversal of that trope. Um and the story's called, uh, I forget the guy's last name, but it's How George Something Almost Saved the World. Um, I believe it's in his Why Coyotes How collection, also available from SoFool Press. Um, it's, it's a very entertaining story with the twist, which is that the furries are the enslaved, poor, put-upon race, and uh, the title character George Something is a politician who has a, a vixen that he takes possession of as a, as a servant or something. and um, So there's some sex in the story as well. But uh, as it turns out, the furries in the story are actually um, attempting to get all the humans under their control with their sensual natures in order to be able to control all of the governments of the world. So the furries are actually kind of ambitious and political and you might even say evil. And, you and know, I've, I've now ruined it for everyone. I apologize for that. <laughs> that's okay. You still have a whole other bunch of stories in that anthology to get your money's worth. <laughs> that's true. And you probably have your money's worth after about two or three of them. So there you go. There's a ringing endorsement. Oh, Watts is terrific. Yes, he's a great writer. And uh, we'll move on to number four. Move on to number four, which is stories in which you forget what species the characters are. Um... Either you mention the character species once when you first introduce them, or maybe you forget to mention it at all. <laughs> and you're just sort of writing, and in your mind, you know exactly what species they are and what they look like, but you're not telling the reader. And especially a furry reader reading a furry story, if you can't fill in that blank, it's really kind of jarring. Yeah. It's, it's something where if you're, you know, this is a, a peculiar niche of writing here and you know use it it's the, the the character is a fox there's a lot of interesting things that come from a character being a a fox person as opposed to a human and if you're not talking about them then why is it a furry story at all um you know the from anything from you know trying to avoid getting your tail caught in a revolving door to the challenges of given a blowjob with 44 sharp little teeth, you know. Um, and it's 
<laughs> I, knew, I knew you'd get that. Uh, so, but it's not something, and again, I'm, I'm, I keep edging into our, our next points. Um, you don't want to sort of hit it too hard, but you also don't want to just forget about it altogether because as you're picturing the story in your mind and writing it, there should be actions and reactions coming from these characters that at least have something to do with the animal nature. Um, I know people who have problems with every reaction to something being, oh, so-and-so flicked his ears, so-and-so wagged his tail, so-and-so curled his tail under him, so-and-so scratched his fur, yeah, yeah, fur bristle, fur hackle, hackles rose. And you don't have to do that every time, but do it, you know, once in a little, once in a while, and just remind the reader that these are furries, because that's what furry fans want to read about. Yeah, and another point from a sort of technical writing standpoint is to disambiguate characters, especially when it comes to pronoun use, especially since, at least in the circles that we prance around, and if you're reading, you know, a gay romance or a gay sex scene and just saying he back and forth, you're going to lose track of who's who. Which, of course, I mean, if you're writing two characters who are the same species, you can't do that, I guess. But uh... Well, and I've, I have heard, actually, and we're getting into pet peeves that are not ours, but I've heard some people express a peeve of referring to characters by their species. I'm saying, you know, oh, the fox picked up the book from the floor, or the cat reached over and patted his shoulder, because they say in regular fiction that kind of thing doesn't happen. Um, in regular fiction, you're writing about one species, usually not a world where you might have a couple dozen. So I think that True. that kind of doesn't apply. And I think where there are cases, like with aliens that the aliens are referred to that way. Yeah. You know, the alien went into the spaceship, yeah. or the alien kissed the human on the nose or something. It's sort of like English grammarians saying that, oh, you can't split an infinitive in English because you can't split an infinitive in Latin, but you yeah. can't split an infinitive in Latin, so that doesn't even apply. Right. And it is actually apparently okay now to split infinitives in English, you know, as long as the sentence sounds good. Oh, yeah. And so the one that was mocked for so long, to boldly go, is actually okay. And to boldly go, I mean, that sounds perfectly okay to me. Sounds perfectly not, cromulent. Not <laughs> or perfectly romulent. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> oh, you went there. Now that Kyle's broken... Okay, he's back. I'm back. There was a brief break. Um, and so that, that actually shades into the next point, which is uh, the next pet peeve which is um, extended expository character descriptions, especially at the start of a story, or over-focusing on character species. And one of the things that we run into every now and then is the character starting the story looking into a mirror, and so you get two paragraphs of the young wolf looked into the mirror with his blue eyes, he admired the black tips on his ears and brushed the white fur of his muzzle, and then he looked down at his chest and the stomach that was starting to show a little bit of weight around the ivory fur and then around the back his gray fur was tinged with brown near the back and the tail and so on and you're getting bored just listening to this imagine what happens when we're reading it do you you have a text file up that i don't see because it sounds like you're reading from something i've read (laughs) um it's uh yeah you don't you don't need to do that just work the description into the story yeah, and as it becomes relevant, you know, with as with all things, really. Uh, and the bit on 
over-focusing. A lot of things I see a lot of is anytime you mention a part of the character's body, like, you know, he picked up the pen in his vulpine paw, or, you know, he brushed his fingers across his lupine muzzle. Like, okay, now you're starting to over-focus. And I think this is sort of more to more to the point of constantly having to mention that just gets distracting and it's it's not quite purple prose it's just it's too much it is yeah you really want to make sure that um that all all writing is a balance between the enough words to get the image across to your reader but not so many that you've got too much and you know so you, you want to it's and you can't say, well, this is the exact right number. Like, you know, make sure you describe something once per scene or anything like that. You need to describe it as often as it needs to be described. And I, I'm, we can't really be more specific than that. It's just when you're reading it, if you notice that you're saying uh, his vulpine tail, his vulpine paws, over and over again, maybe you should take some of those out. Also. Try to go easy with the epithets too, like the russetford canid walked down the hall. Yeah. And, you know, it's like okay, you can just say he's a fox. We know we know a fox has red fur. Yeah. You don't need to remind us constantly. Pretty much, unless um, he's an arctic fox, or a gray fox, or a fennec, or a swift fox, <laughs> or a crab-eating fox, or a silver fox, <sighs> or a culpio. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> and speaking of foxes, and speaking of too much, um, I'll let Hirosaki-san read our last one off. Yes. So, um, using fandom stereotypes that are too strongly associated with the fandom view of the species, and especially in the way where you'll have this be part of a fictional setting where there's not really either a call for it or an exp- explanation for it. Right, and being a fox, I'm particularly sensitive to the fox stereotypes. So, you know, in the fandom there's a stereotype, and I have no idea how this came about, that foxes enjoy um, sex from specific, uh, specific limited set of positions, shall we say. Um, but that does not mean that in your fictional world, which is populated with millions of foxes, that they all follow that fandom stereotype. I mean, hell, not even all the foxes in the fandom follow that stereotype. And sort of going on from there, also just... It'd be like if you were writing a story with humans and you were, like, any blonde character you had fit some, like, ridiculous, like, blonde joke stereotype. Right. Where, like, it's silly at best and offensive at the worst. Yeah, exactly. That's actually a good analogy for it, I think. Um. So just just be careful unless you're writing some unless you're writing a humorous piece in which the intent is to say, you know, well, all foxes are sluts, all wolves are insecure doms, all I don't know what else. I mean, I actually wrote a story where the all entire point was that you had this dorm full of foxes that were all bottomy sluts. You did, and I remember that. Um, but I that, was, that, while that was, was for humorous effect. And it worked, I think. I like to think it did. Um, now, I, and that's a little separate. Again, I'm going to go back to the novel Vol, where um, 
certain species have, I don't want to say reputations, but uh, like because of the differences in species, they have different uh, behavior patterns around sex. Um, for instance, I have weasels able to, uh, weasels come pretty quickly, but then they can go like five times a night. And rabbits have a lot of stamina, but those are all related sort of to physical characteristics. It's not about the behaviors of the characters as a class. My crush on Helfer has nothing to do with that, by the way. Uh, I, I'm aware of that. <laughs> Some good otter on weasel action is always fun, huh? Um, <laughs> sorry, Hirosaki-san is temporarily indisposed now. Um, choking on my sangria. <laughs> I'm choking on my own rage, yeah. But, um, yeah, so there you have it. Those are, those are our guidelines to write in non-peeve-inducing furry fiction. And you'll notice that for at least a couple of these, we have this one peeve, which is, don't do this, and then followed up by, but don't do the opposite of this either. Exactly. And it's sort of, you know, moderation in all things. Very and, Buddhist. And uh, two or three of them also are, don't bring into your stories the things, the behaviors that you have in the fandom. Um, things like, you know, you talk about, we use certain colloquialisms when talking back and forth, and that can give good color to a story, but it should be in the dialogue of the characters. It shouldn't be in the narrative. And I think that that's a good general rule for anything that's going to sort of fit into a more casual mode. Unless your entire writing style is based on being really casual and talky, that sort of thing should be, you know, reserved for dialogue regardless. And if you are the, the Kevin Smith of the furry fandom, then you can certainly get away with that. Yeah. Do we, do we have a Kevin Smith? We've got a lot of big guys with facial hair, but... Uh, I think... I, I don't know. I can't think of anyone who comes close to that right at the moment in terms of reading. If you're out there and you're listening, please email us. And write in with a sample. Right. Um, well, we're getting the time signal, so I think um, this is a good place to wrap it up. Yeah, and um, I like to think that we covered some uh, good ground here. I don't think we retread ourselves very much. And, you know, with all the, the talking about pet peeves about furry fiction and so on, you know, we do enjoy furry stories. I don't get to read as many now as I would like to. Um, I tend to try to read uh, more published books when I have time to read anything at all. Uh, but I do read the occasional furry story here and there. I read the stuff that Sofwolf publishes. I read some stuff on Fur Affinity. And, you know, there's a lot of good stuff out there. And just because you might subscribe to some of the practices that we say are pet peeves does not mean that you should throw up your hands and rend your garments and figure you're never going to be a good writer because, you know, these are things that a lot of people do. You can get over it. And to tie this back into the first question we had about what do you do about the embarrassing stories that you wrote when you first got started, if you did happen to write, you know, in your earlier work stuff that took some of these peeves and tropes and ran them into the ground, please don't hate yourself. I promise that me and Kyle aren't going to, you know, send the furry writing police to your door and you know, break your kneecaps. Nope. Well, thank you again for listening. Keep writing in your questions. Um, for the seventh episode of Unsheet, I am Kyle Gold. And closing out again is Kam Hirasaki. Good night. And good luck.